Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I wanted to take a moment to sincerely thank you for listening to the show, especially those of you who've been here from the beginning. Your choice to show up here each week and develop relational self-awareness alongside me makes this all possible, and I hope the podcast is bringing lots of goodness into your life and your relationships. You know, one of the best ways to support Reimagining Love is to leave a positive review in Apple Podcasts. To do so, simply visit the show homepage, scroll down past the recent episode listings, and click the Write a Review button beside the paper and pen icon. And if you don't have access to Apple Podcasts, no worries. Sharing this podcast with someone in your life who would benefit from it is another wonderful way to support us. I want to take a moment and share some recent reviews and thank these listeners for sharing their thoughts. Peaches Plum writes, I can't get enough and recommend often to friends when they mention troubles they are facing. This show has broadened my mind when it comes to interpersonal relationships. Dr. Solomon's voice is so soothing, it's always a lovely listen. Ah. And then Jules0414 writes this. This is one of the best podcasts out there on relationships in its breadth of topics, relevance to real challenges people experience at various life stages, and the expertise of Alexandra Solomon. She also brings diverse guests from various backgrounds and ages. Ugh, these reviews mean so much. So thank you to these reviewers and to all of you for being here and committing yourself to more love, more connection, and more growth. Hi there. The world of self-help books is vast, and these days you can find a title on virtually any topic or challenge you may be facing, and there are so many wonderful voices to celebrate. But <laughs> there is one legendary person who defined and transformed the self-help genre forever with her 1986 book, Codependent No More, How to Stop Controlling Others and Start Caring About Yourself. She is Melody Beattie, my guest for today's episode. A pioneering voice in self-help literature, Melody is the author of many best-selling books, including The Language of Letting Go, Playing It by Heart, The Grief Club, Beyond Codependency, and The Codependent No More Workbook. In 2009, Codependent No More was named one of the four essential self-help books of all time by Newsweek. And in 2022, a revised edition of Codependent No More was published with a new chapter on anxiety and trauma. And you know, when I was growing up, there was always a Melody Beattie book on my mom's nightstand, and I still have my copy of Codependent No More that I bought during college. So 
you know that I was over the moon to have a chance to connect with her. This book is as relevant today as it was 35 years ago, and I'm so thrilled to have the legendary Melody Beattie on Reimagining Love for a look back on her groundbreaking career and all that she has learned along the way. Melody and I conclude the episode by chatting about a wonderful listener question. The person who wrote in is recently single and she wants to be intentional as she starts to date again about creating happiness and validation within herself rather than letting that be determined solely by a romantic partner. I loved responding to this thoughtful question with Melody and I hope that you will listen to the end to hear our advice. Enjoy the episode. Melody, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. It's my pleasure to meet you and to have a conversation with you and your listeners. (laughs) So the place we have to start is me telling you that when your book, Codependent No More, was published 35 years ago, I was 14 and I am the daughter of a lover of self-help. And so I remember your book sitting on my mom's stack of self-help books at her desk where she would read. And your book came into her life and therefore my life at a time when I was just beginning to understand the patterns of addiction that were in my family's system. And so your book was there with me as I was beginning to learn the language of addiction, codependence, enabling. And so you have been a part of my journey personally, and then of course, professionally as a therapist. So you live right here in my heart and have for many, many, many years. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I never wanted to be the codependency lady. Huh. That was not my dream. I wanted to work with the addicts and the alcoholics and help them. But when I, in the 70s, the mid-70s, when I started working in treatment and in the early 80s, women didn't have quite those jobs of power. We got to work in the office. We got to do other things. And so one day the head of the treatment center called me in and she said, if we want to keep getting federal funding, we've got to do something for the families. And I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, we don't either. That's why you get the job. And so I was thrust into this kicking and screaming. And yet I learned, I was really investigating all my own issues simultaneously. It was rather horrifying. (laughs) It was. You were, right, you are truly a pioneer, like in the actual literal sense, a pioneer. You were first into this realm and you were making it up as you went along. You were discovering what this word means, what these dynamics are. Truly a pioneer. And we're still pioneering in it. This new revision of Codependent No More, it's the best of the old because there was much good in there, but there's also new stuff that we need to know. You know, the longer I'm in this game, the more I believe that trauma and anxiety are a huge part of our whole reactionary process. We're filled with trauma and anxiety if we've lived with and around alcoholism or addiction or even other dysfunctions. But as you write in the new edition, it would have been impossible for you to make connections between codependency and trauma because that word trauma was barely used. And if it was used, it was exclusively the domain at that time for war, war veterans. For veterans, the, yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't, it was not a word that we had as an understanding of painful family patterns of the impact of addiction. It was a word exclusively for the kinds of otherworldly trauma that veterans endure. Yeah. Now they're saying this. I don't know. How do you prove something is true? But they're saying that anxiety and trauma are contagious, that we can catch anxiety. And I believe that we're all tuned into each other via electricity. And it seems like we have global anxiety right now Absolutely. at a crippling level. Yeah. yeah. Well, and how could we not when we look at the large issues like war and climate crisis in the last 20 years. (laughs) Look at the last 20 years. If you don't have anxiety, you're not living. You're not paying attention. Yeah. (laughs) I want to start with you, Melody, by asking you the question that I ask of all of my guests, which is a relational self-awareness question. May I ask you this question? Go on. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about a growing edge 
that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships and what it's been teaching you lately? Mm. I think the hardest thing I've learned in recent years is, number one, if you're dating, have a checklist of all the disorders. (laughs) (laughs) Just fill this out, please. (laughs) Well, yeah, but they'll lie, so we have to keep track of it. But it's um, learning to say no in relationships, like this isn't working for me, It's, it's not going anywhere, without blaming the other person without getting hateful and angry and blaming and just say, you know, this isn't working. You're lovely. It was maybe meant for a while, but it's not meant long-term. God bless you and I'm gone. Yeah. It doesn't mean something's wrong with me. It doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means I am not choosing this. I'm not going to continue to choose this. Yeah. And actually being respectful and polite in both beginnings and endings in relationships, whether they're friendships, work relationships, or a romantic relationship is one of the most important things I've learned over the last 20 years. Do we struggle to be polite in our endings because we get confused that if I can be polite, then maybe it shouldn't end? So do we think we have to be angry in order to prove that it needs to end? What do you think? Some of us need to be angry to set boundaries. It's the only way we can muster up the heave hole to set a good boundary. I don't think that's necessary. In fact, I think it mucks things up. What I'm learning even beyond that is to lean into beginnings and lean into endings instead of getting my hammer out and demanding that everything happen right now with a bang. Mm. Wow. Letting something have its own pace and its own timing without Mm -hmm. being forced. Yeah, without thinking I have to control everything. I mean, the depths of my need to control know a few bounds. <laughs> I love that. I lo- Right, that you are still learning, especially I can imagine in, in the dating realm. It's like there's another lesson, another lesson, even as you are quite literally the queen of all things codependency. You have taught millions and millions and generations of people this. And here you are, you you write in the beginning of your new edition of the book that you identify as a wounded healer, which is a term from Carl Jung. And I love that. And I would love to hear you talk a bit about these parallel tracks of your incredible success as a visionary and leader in this field and your ongoing journey of your own healing and work. What's it like to be on those two tracks? And then there's the writer too. The part in me that's always researching the next book. I found that in some ways, my success has made it harder to find and write authentic books because everyone recognizes me now. They didn't recognize me back then when I was first researching codependency. I was just Melody. So sometimes it's harder to find that sacred space where people are real, where they're telling you the truth. And you can interview them, you can hear this story, and you can respond without someone expecting me to be Melody Beattie. I can just be me. My spirit can talk. They can talk back. That is my preference. But we don't always get what we prefer, do we? We don't. We don't. In that way, I imagine your commitment to knowing yourself as a wounded healer must help with that, right? Because you are committed to showing up authentically despite somebody's fantasies of you or imaginations of you. On the bright side, and there is one, I see this magical synchronicity always, always between what I'm going through, between the world around me, between the people coming into my life and to what I'm learning. I mean, it's just... It's like this beautifully orchestrated, majestic symphony playing in my life if I'm quiet and if I listen. And it guides me to the next place when I can listen to my intuition, when I can tune in, all really is well. Mm, Okay. I'm putting that right inside of me because I struggle so much with thinking I've got to be the one to figure out what's next, the right thing, the wrong thing. Where's my yes? Where's my no? And I love that reminder about the beautiful symphony that we can trust is playing out if we're quiet. 
Yeah, I, I think one of the issues our culture has faced is we haven't been a very quiet culture for quite a few years. Everyone's been screaming and no one's been listening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that just makes more anxiety and trauma. It, it, it's not helpful. Yeah. I really want you to break down what codependency means and doesn't mean. And this was a term, as you were saying before, started off in a very specific way. It was the spouses, in fact, the wives of alcoholic Mm -hmm. men who had this behavior that everybody could see. Everyone could see the quote unquote craziness of these wives. And there had to be a word for it. But the, the definition has evolved. In fact, now you define codependency as a codependent person is one who has let another person's behavior affect them and who is obsessed with controlling the other person's behavior. So I'm going to throw something more into the loop. I I have a new definition. Bring it. As a result of my recent work. And it's people who love others consistently and to their detriment more than they love themselves. Okay, say it one more time for us, please. People who love others regularly and consistently and to their detriment, other people more than they love themselves. Tell us about that. Why is that definition capturing something so essential? What is it capturing? Well, our world has changed. I mean, we can run into, excuse my language, batshit crazy people who don't use drugs and alcohol. So... It's hard to just tag it on chemical dependency anymore. We've got to walk around this world with this inherent, quiet trust in ourselves because often codependents are the ones we're colorblind when it comes to red signs. We think they're green. Mm-hmm. We do because it's what we've lived with for much of our lives. Oh, yeah, I know this. Let me add it. I know this and I can handle this. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable in this arena. Yeah, I can handle this. Bring it on. Bring on the pain. I can handle that. The threshold for knowing, actually, this isn't working. That threshold ends up being very, very high if we've known chaos and if we've known how to adjust ourselves to chaos. We can make it work. We can fit into any situation and we can make it work if we just repress enough of ourselves long enough and hard enough. (laughs) And love someone more than we love ourselves. That's that part, right? Is like I believe that's where the obsession comes in. It's when anytime we're obsessing, we're loving on someone else more than we are on ourselves because we're abusing our own minds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To somehow gain the authority and agency over ourselves that we can just stop doing that. Is a very worthwhile goal. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you. Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. So if somebody who struggles with codependency is so focused on the other person, you know, your much of the book is is centered on the idea of the the liberation from codependency starts with self-care, practices of self-care. Why is it so hard for those of us who struggle with codependency? Why is it so hard for us to focus on ourselves and self-care? What's the risk? What's the fear? What's the danger? Why is it so hard for us? I don't know exactly, but I'm suspecting it's just one more event in the very long saga of freedom for women. When my mom was born, 
most jobs women couldn't even hold. They weren't allowed to buy homes in their own name. There was a certain amount of built-in dependency on males by women in our culture. And that doesn't disappear overnight. It doesn't. It's remnants. It's shadows hang around and hang around and hang around. They hang around in the stories we're told on TV about love. They hang around in our imaginings and fantasies about love that someone will come along and, oh, they will lovingly take care of us and we can devote our life to making them happy. Well, that's more of a recipe for codependency, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Mm-hmm. That's the exchange. He will provide for me and I will take care of him. That's the exchange. I will make him happy. Yeah. Yeah. And how often does that work? Um, not so much. <laughs> very tempting, very seductive idea, right? It feels like an exchange that could possibly work if you just... It, it feels very warm and cozy, doesn't it? A nice exchange, but it, it's not. Before I went to treatment when I was 24... I stood in front of a judge who looked me in the eye and said, did you know you're responsible for your own behavior? And if I would have been honest, I would have said no. (laughs) No. I don't know that. (laughs) No. Can you explain it to me? (laughs) (laughs) My mother had enabled me most of my life. Nobody had really, truly ever taught me that, that for every action I take, There's a reaction. There's an opposite and equal reaction, or there's an action. And I am ultimately and daily responsible for all the actions I take or don't take. And I don't know that women have ever really been taught that. Not fully. I'm responsible for how much money I make or don't make. I'm responsible for how clean my house is or isn't. I'm responsible for what I do or don't do for work. I'm responsible for how I treat people in my world. And I'm responsible for how I treat myself. Somehow along the lines of life, for many of us, we've never learned about forming a loving relationship with ourselves. I had never experienced parental love from either a father or a mom. Never. How would I know what that even felt like? I spent the first two years of my life in the hospital with failure to thrive. And my mom worked, so she never came to visit me. I remember I had a little pair of baby shoes as a mobile. And that was my life for the first two years. So how would I learn how to love? How would I learn what it meant to feel nurtured, to feel safe? You have had to quite literally parent yourself, reparent yourself the way that you should have been parented when you were little. Well, first I had to learn about reparenting, didn't I? (laughs) You did. I mean, you did. That was we, not really a word we t- we used back in the day, hey? No, I mean, I. It's hard to know what we're lacking when we've never known it. You're not right. You weren't going back to something. You weren't recreating something. You were truly creating. No, I wasn't recreating something I had once experienced and going for that good feeling. When someone said, "You know, love yourself," I was like, "What are you talking about? What do you even mean?" So. The good news is that's a journey we get to go on. And once we find that ticket to self-love, how to nurture ourselves, how to regulate our own emotions, how to make ourselves feel safe and to feel cozy without looking for another person to do that. I mean, it's nice if they do, but ultimately that's our responsibility. Somebody else's love then becomes additive. Like it just is. It's lovely to have, but it's not essential. It's like a lovely dessert at the end of a meal. Ah, uh, yes. a dessert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are some of the practices that are in your life today that are ways that you demonstrate that you love yourself, remind yourself that you love yourself? Like, what does that look like on a given day for you? Well, I have a lovely podcast room that's full of my favorite things. But on a deeper level, it's about a radical honesty with myself. What do I need right now? What am I really, my big ticket is what am I really feeling? Do I really like this person or am I just enduring him or her? Because I have an incredible tolerance for pain, as many of us do, and for dysfunction. You know, I find it curious, interesting, painful, all those things, but I don't 
run from it probably the way I should. Mm-hmm. And so radical honesty is what helps you sift through, am I here because it's familiar or am I here because I am actually choosing this? That's our big question, I believe. And then learning to pause before I act and before I speak. Impulsivity can be one of my larger problems. I get all revved up and I can be very impulsive in my choices, ordering from Amazon, whatever. I could be extremely impulsive. So it's good for me to learn to pause and to have a think and be quiet before I make choices. It, It helps me. I feel like that for me, my urgency, like that kind of frantic urgency that I experience, I think for me, that goes back to my childhood, like where things really were urgent. There frequently was crisis, right? So that's, I know that that place is that like little girl part of me that feels scramble or that is so accustomed to things feeling urgent and frantic. Mm -hmm. The other thing I do is um, instead of, well, I've, I've stopped turning on myself when I'm down. That was one of my favorite behaviors. If I did something wrong, if I wasn't pleased with what I did, if I was upset, I would turn on myself and I would like mentally abuse myself. And I'm really working at not doing that anymore. Just letting that go. It's not necessary. If I need to take an inventory, I can do that. But I don't need to talk to myself the way the meanest person in my world consistently talked to me the entire time I was growing up. Right. You know that you have the capacity to turn against yourself. And so that is why you have made a fierce commitment to not, you will not do to yourself what somebody else has done to you. Mm-hmm. That's not. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't let anyone else treat me the way I treat myself inside my own mind. I, I, I just wouldn't do that. And the other thing is we know how to nurture and love others. We know how to make them feel safe and loved. We just in my case, I have to make a specific decision to focus that on myself. And so I go to bed a little bit early now and I get all cozy in bed and I direct that self-love at myself. I, I try and give myself the same kind of nurturing and love I give my pet. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's so well said. I love that. Okay, so we mentioned we brought up motherhood, right? But Mm -hmm. with a way that we mother others, where the heck is the line between being a good wife or a good mom and a codependent? You pose this question in, in the book because so much of what we are taught culturally about what it means to be a good mom, what it means to be a good wife, what it means to be a good woman feels like it is the entire list of criteria for codependency. Well, it can be, yeah. One of the most helpful things we can do, and it might take a little work, but it's not as much work as being codependent, is sitting down and examining what our true responsibilities are to another human. What are my responsibilities to my child and how do they change with age? When we have a baby, we're responsible for everything for that baby. But if we're still taking care of our 15-year-old that way, we've got a 15-year-old that doesn't know proper cause and effect. So we get to decide what those lines are based on culturally acceptable ideas of what's age-appropriate for people. And this is guaranteed. The minute we start taking responsibility for someone else, we're going to start building up resentments in our victim story. It comes hand-in-hand with it. I was on the phone last night with our son, who's 20, and he was sharing something with me. And I was aware I didn't like how he was, you know, the choices that he was making. He, I thought he was handling a situation not in the way that I wanted him to handle it. And so I started, it was very passive. I didn't say, I think you should do A, not B. I was asking questions and I was pausing and he knew exactly what was going on. And he said, <laughs> mom, I said, okay, B, okay, here goes me. I'm backing up. I'm taking a breath because it was all of that urgency and all of that impulsivity to think that I know better what he should and shouldn't be doing. And he was on to me before I was on to myself. Yeah, they get smarter, don't they? Actually, by the time our kids are three or even four, 
they already have a pretty good idea of our buttons mm-hmm. and how to push them. And right now in the whole treatment regime, people are having such difficulty navigating the mental health systems and setting boundaries with their kids that they're high. And this is brilliant. They hire professional boundary setters. <laughs> yep. There's <laughs> a market for everything. And, it, and it's brilliant. And it's it's working for parents who can afford it. Right. And, you know, a book like yours is another avenue, a less expensive avenue for really like doing the work of understanding what is going on inside of you. Like I, this, there's this paradox, right? Of the person who struggles with codependency oftentimes feels like a victim, a martyr, someone who's just trying to help. And in fact, they are experienced as controlling, right? In that moment, my son was experiencing me as controlling. I didn't feel controlling. I felt anxious. I felt nervous. I felt urgent. I didn't feel controlling, right? That's the paradox is it doesn't, inside of the codependent person, it does not oftentimes feel like controlling or a need for control. But damn, on the receiving end of it, it sure does feel. I don't know that I've ever felt controlling, Mm -hmm. but I know for certain that I've been controlling. (laughs) (laughs) So no, I don't believe we experience ourselves necessarily the same way others experience us. Okay. So what do we do about that? That makes it harder, right? It makes it harder to get it. It makes it harder to make that connection because the felt experience on the inside is I'm just trying to be helpful. Maybe that's the thing. When we catch ourselves saying, but I'm just trying to be helpful, that's a pretty good indicator that you actually are being controlled. Yeah. Time to zip it and meditate. I have... You just zipped your lip. Zip it and meditate. Get on your mat. Okay. Um, I I have found, and people are going to get sick of me hearing this, if there is one gift I could give to every child, every adult in our world, it would be the gift of meditation. With the tie-in between anxiety, PTSD, and codependency, it is so good as like an anti-codependency pill. It really is. I mean, you were just talking about that. You start feeling anxious, impulsive. I mean, all those feelings. The Probably the most helpful thing we can learn to do is to recognize when we start feeling that way, no matter what it's attached to, and then take steps to calm ourselves down. Right, because you can't take the steps until you notice it's happening inside of you. And that's what... Yeah, until we know that we're spinning out. Yeah. yeah. And so meditation, right, because meditation is bringing awareness, it helps us develop a more nuanced map of knowing when we're calm. Like that, the distinction, like when we've crossed from calm to anxious, we can't understand what anxious feels like unless we know calm. I know. When, when I'm really wound up, my motto is do something, even if it's wrong. You know, it's like this impulsive need to do. Yep. Versus the just pause. Just just pause. Are we making progress as a culture? Like, so we're 35 years into having your book. Seven mil, over 7 million copies of your book have been sold over all of these years. How are we doing, Melody? Are we getting, are we getting any better? Are we worse? Are we same? Are we, where are we at in this, in our collective? Well, I worried a lot over the last 20 years. I thought, you know, why did I even write that book? No one seems to be reading it. <laughs> um, we are evolving. We are evolving. You know, I, I, I'm not completely sure where we're going. My hope is that it's a better place. But we are having more conversations, and that's good. If it's in the light, at least it can be seen. Agreed. Okay, good. I'm going to keep that faith right along with you. Can we do our listener questions? I've got two questions from Reimagining Love listeners. I would love to get your thoughts on. Go on. Okay. So our first one is from a listener in Illinois. She uses she, her pronouns. And she writes, hi, Alexandra. After going through a recent breakup, I was reflecting with my friend about romantic relationships and how dependent we can become on other people for our happiness and or self-worth. 
I realized that my boyfriend contributed a lot to my happiness, and I want to be able to create that happiness for myself now. I definitely want to date and find love again in the future, but how will I know if I'm becoming too dependent on someone else for my happiness? Where is the line between being in a healthy relationship and being too codependent? Hmm. That's a line we each need to find for ourselves. The, the best thing I can tell anyone is slow down your beginnings. Don't just slow down your endings. Slow down your beginnings. Because there's this juncture at which we flip or we lose ourselves, and we start becoming convinced the other person is the key to our happiness. We're never going to feel any different when we get something we think we have to have than we felt before we got it. So again, it's mindfulness. It's mindfulness in slowing down and maybe a, a little calmer approach as we're going in. Because if we know who we are every day, then we won't lose us, will, will we? Sometimes we go fast at beginnings because it's really hard to tolerate all of that uncertainty, which is why you're wanting her to practice mindfulness so that she creates more capacity to hold uncertainty without foreclosing on, okay, yes, or okay, no. To yeah. just Let's just get in so we don't have to worry about it. Let's just yeah. get in and cement this thing. And that's often not the best way to go. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about with this question, I want to normalize for her that when she's in a relationship, she very likely does feel different, right? Intimate partnerships evoke lots of strong feelings inside of us. But I would want her to be a little bit more like nuanced, that it's probably not that she's, quote, more happy in a relationship. It may just be that when she's in a relationship, she's having different kinds of experiences, different parts of herself are coming forward. So I would want her to just maybe have a little more nuance around. I doubt that it's like I'm unhappy single and I'm happy partnered, but it probably is the case that when she's dating someone, she's experiencing different kinds of emotions. Yeah. We get oxytocin. Our phone rings and it's someone we want to hear from or we may want to hear from them. We won't know if we lose ourselves too much, if we really want to hear from them or not. But yeah, we, we do get good bits. But are we becoming dependent on the good bits or is this something, are we losing ourselves? I think that's the most important thing to ask. Am I losing myself? Do I still know who I am? Am I still the author of my happiness or have I made this person responsible for whether or not I feel happy? And, it, you know, there's no magic way to do it. I believe slowing down and staying in touch with ourselves is the best way to not lose ourselves, to not go over that edge. And I don't think we should be too hard on ourselves for enjoying being in a relationship if it's a good one. That's right. That's right. That's right. That So maybe the distinction is, we certainly don't want her to lose herself, but could the relationship be an expansion of self, a celebration of self? Like maybe mm -hmm. that's that line, right? That she is actually mm -hmm. more in, in a healthy relationship. We are going to hope that she feels like more of herself or a, that herself is being celebrated. I know. And it's so hard to know with all these movies portraying love as being this whole thing that it isn't. So we get to each of us discover what we want love to be and then enjoy the moments if it's good. And if it's never good, then we need to take a look at that, don't we? I think it's very hard on the heels of COVID. I don't know about your clients, but it was not a great dating time. No, <laughs> It was not a great dating time. That is true. <laughs> No. But you know what? I just read a study that says that coming out of COVID, people are more discerning and deprioritizing things like looks and income and prioritizing things like personality traits, quality of connection, quality of communication. That's a quite a silver lining, right? Is that perhaps... COVID did slow us down mm -hmm. and we needed to be slowed. We needed to be slowed. Right, which fits with what you've been saying throughout this conversation is this idea of slowing down our beginnings, slowing down, like being gentle with the beginnings, being gentle with the endings. Yeah, so that may be one of the one of the gifts, not that we would ever have wanted COVID. And like every crisis, like every crisis, there are opportunities for, okay, what the hell do we want to learn from this? 
Okay, I have one additional thought for this listener, and you tell me if you like this idea. I, I was thinking about, I was imagining her taking a piece of paper and writing down all of the things that she loves, all of her practices, all of her rituals, all of her style choices, all of her, you know, preferences and musics and foods, all the things that she loves that are sort of reflections of who she is, who she wants to be, and holding onto that list because then she can know as she's beginning a new relationship, she can check in with that list. Like, are all of these things still mine? Are all of the, can I feel, do I still have these access points to myself? Am I still holding all of these like little points on the map that help me know that I'm me? What do you think of that? Her playlist book, her playlist book for her favorite things in life. Yeah. To see if they're still her favorite. What do you think? Yeah, that that sounds like it could be a very good idea. Yeah. Her fear is real, right? She's She comes by this fear because she's a woman. She's a woman who dates men. And she mm-hmm. has generations and generations of women, not maybe just even in her own family, but women who have lost themselves in intimate partnerships, who have shrunk themselves. It was our job to lose ourselves in partnerships. Yep. So she's not making she's not making up this concern. It's, this is not a... No, no. No, I, a playlist book sounds like a very good idea. Her favorite foods, her favorite movies, her favorite songs, her favorite colors, her favorite activities. And then keeping that book close to her heart. I mean, hopefully we, we learn new things that the person we're with shows us. New things that we haven't seen yet in the world. The last guy I dated was from the UK. And he was able to show me a lot of very interesting things about Britain and that world, British TV. No, it was quite interesting. And so some of those have now moved on to my Uh playlist (laughs) of of favorite things. So yeah, we can develop new things, but it's important to hang on to what we truly love. I will never not love with all my heart, the Rolling Stones. No one has (laughs) taken that from you. (laughs) ever no matter what oh I love that I love that I also want her to date a man who gets this or at least tries to get this because it is not going to be the same for him he's not going to have the same fear of losing himself that she will have but I think that a man can have deep curiosity about what that's like for a woman what that fear is like and deep reverence for that fear even though it's not one where he can exactly probably put himself in her shoes. So I want her to be with someone who can sit with her in that question and be an ally to her in this goal of not losing herself. Good luck on that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're not feeling so hopeful. (laughs) Mm. I know. I know. We got a ways to go, right? We got a ways to go with raising our men differently. Dating is so hard. I mean, watch YouTube for a couple hours. Yeah. 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 That's where you can get really pessimistic, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. One more question for you before I let you go. Go on then. Okay. Let's talk about Brooke. So Brooke is writing in from Colorado and she says, my boyfriend and I are divorced parents thinking about joining our separate households in a new home. We have very different parenting styles. What can you recommend to ease the transition as we figure out our roles in this newly combined family? What do you think? I think it's going to take thought, going slow, and a lot of concrete positivity. You know, we can make this work. We will make this work. We will make mistakes. And we will correct them as we go. But I think positivity is very important because if they're waffling about, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? It's going to be too easy to throw it out the window. When it comes to kids, I don't, I don't think we should waffle in our commitments. We should be very concrete on our commitments to our children. So they might want to practice initially go on some vacations, just first discuss, go between themselves and discuss what they're going to do with parenting and then practice a little. In, in It's very hard to practice being a parent. But. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think that's that is such a huge distinction. The distinction between like, like you are asking them or challenging them to be deeply committed, and being deeply committed does not mean stuck. They're not stuck. They're not trapped. This is still something they're choosing, right? You can choose and you can commit. And so you really want them to lead with commitment. Like if we're going to do this, we're doing this all the way. We're not. We're not waffling. We're not maybe. We're not. We'll try and see. It is. It is a commitment that is driving it. I, I think that's so important with children. Yep. And there's such a gentleness around this idea that it's going to be hard and you're going to fumble and you're going to be more blended in year three than you are in year one. And you're going to be even more blended in year five, right? That blending a family takes time and you can't, it can't be rushed. There's no, there's no way of rushing that idea of time and the need to have repeated Tuesday evening taco night and repeated Saturday morning donuts and repeated walks and repeated, you know, whatever it is like there, like that has to happen again and again and again to become family. So it's going to take time. It, it is. And again, I'm going to talk about the idea of leaning in instead of starting off with a bang. And by that, I mean, allowing ourselves to get into the process Trust the process, explore the process, talk about the process, but mostly trusting it after you've made a commitment, I mean, a solid commitment, and you're, you're, you've decided that you're also going to commit to staying positive about that commitment. Yeah. yeah, not Pollyanna and not delusional, but positive, like really anchoring into we can do this, we can do this. Yeah, if, if the parents aren't positive, the kids will pick up on that and they'll get their fingers in that crack and they'll split it up and they'll break it. That's what kids yep, that's right. are made to do. It does not mean that the two of them need to be perfect because what the hell is perfect? There's no such thing as perfect. There's no perfect parent. But the two of them need to be respectful and collaborative, right? And looking at each other and saying, okay, let's pause and step away and figure out how the hell we're going to handle this moment. Yeah. And I, th- I heard a great line a couple of days ago. I just loved it. It said, there's no perfect people, but we can have pure hearts. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we need, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I would also want them, I think one of the things that I, I think blended families, blending families struggle because divorce remains stigmatized. I think so often a blending family can feel like a lesser kind of family. And I would want to like validate for the two of them that they didn't come up with that. That's a cultural notion and it's a terrible, terrible cultural notion. It's an unfair cultural notion. So I would want them to be on the lookout for ways in which there might be some negative self-talk inside of their heads that somehow they're whatever, failures, or this family is a less than kind of a family. And instead to know that it's really quite beautiful to give kids the opportunity to have, you know, I started calling them bonus parents instead of step parents. Like these kids are now going to have potentially a bonus parent and some bonus siblings. And that, that, that is not a lesser form of family, even though there still is that kind of like cultural backdrop that, you know, stigmatizes divorce and stigmatizes blending families. And there's still a family with a capital F. Oh, a full capital F. That's right. Because anytime, right, anytime shame or negative self-talk takes hold inside of us, we start becoming more impulsive, more we disengage, we retreat, we panic. So that I would want them to be really keeping an eye out for that. Yeah, we get anxiety. We have anxiety about so much, especially now. And the other thing is there is absolutely nothing Nothing wrong with an undying commitment and love for family. You know, it's a it's a lovely and noble, not just idea, but goal we can continually aspire to. I'm so grateful for my family. Not necessarily going up, <laughs> but going down, the family going down and the love and the support I feel. It's an anchor. It's like a tree where the, you know, the roots go down deep and the branches go up into the sky and it's our yeah. family. Oh, yes. And so if that's the place from which they begin, that they are creating a tree, that that is right. I think about that. My my family system that I grew up in is a blended family and my relationship with my stepfather continues to evolve. He continues to, to mean more 
to me in year 40 of him being my stepfather, 45, than he even did to me in year one, right? Like that relationship, I'm so blessed that I get to have so many chapters of that relationship. And he's not my dad, but my gosh, he means a ton to me, you know? And that's, that is what blending families, blended families got to do. That's, I love that. It's a family with a capital F. Mm -hmm. I had eight stepfathers. That's right. I had eight eight stepfathers. So I didn't have a particularly memorable experience on the positive level with any of them, but it was my training ground, wasn't it? It taught me what I wanted to do with my own family and what I wanted to create. Mm -hmm. The people that came before us did not do this to us. They were all struggling to make sense of life in the best way that they could. Yeah. You, You write with quite a bit of compassion about your mom, that relationship. Yeah, that you that she did the best she could, and she was in a tremendous amount of pain. That's right. It was. An enormous amount of pain, yeah. Yeah. as was my dad. Um, I never met my grandmother on his. I, I, I don't know a lot of my relatives, so I think that's why family going downwards is so very, 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 very important to me. You're and a, that love. You are a massive pattern disruptor. You you disrupted and transformed so much pain in your lineage. Oh, Melody, I can't believe I just got to sit here with you for all this time. This has been truly, like truly an honor and a pleasure to have a chance to to meet you and to be in conversation with you. I know. I forgot we were potting. I thought we were just talking. <laughs> Isn't that the best? I love that feeling. I had it too. I was like, oh, yeah. shoot. Okay. 52 minutes. Here we go. Oh. All right. It was a pleasure. And I hope we are past cross again. I do too. So we will link in the show notes Melody Beattie's book, Codependent No More, which has just been published as a new, fully revised edition. But what else, Melody? Where else can people go to learn more about all of your important work and your 19 other books? <laughs> I think there's actually 21 other oh. books. I'm, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure anymore. I am revising my website, so I can't really send them anywhere right now. But There will be more. There will be more. And there will be a new website that's coming up. Well, we will share that when it's ready and available. I certainly know that the challenges of there's so much to do, right, to kind of manage your ecosystem and polish this and revise this. I certainly know that very well. Yeah. And wait till you read my book after next. And that will explain some of the current mysteries. (gasps) Oh, I mean, that's the best cliffhanger ever. (laughs) I love it. Okay, well, then you'll have to come back on the show again. I will. It's called Living by Spirit. Oh, Melody, Living by Spirit. Okay, well, we will wait, but just maybe type a little faster and get get it done soon. Okay, I'll hurry. Thank you, Melody, for your invaluable contributions to our cultural conversation about relationships. I hope that you will pick up the new revised edition of Codependent No More, which is linked in the show notes. Thank you for being here with me today. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.